0: ...at the outcome and consequences of the recent uh, problems in Israel. As, of course, you know, in, in mid-May, uh, the, the war between the uh, Palestinians and Israel broke out. and We want to have a look and review uh, that uh, those events in the light of Bible prophecy because they're very, very important to what's happened in the last few weeks uh, in Israel. I'm going to show initially, though, a, a th- three-minute or so video just to remind you of what has happened and what we saw of course was Israel shooting down
1: iron uh, and the as rockets as were being fire fired from the from Gaza City and droplets. the
0: Gaza Strip and okay, well, they were using what they call the Iron Dome now it's I don't see Brother Dave Clark Smith here dishes. today but Back in, in 2014, in the last in war of this kind, uh, he was actually with a couple of other brethren in the land of Israel, and, Israel, and he picked and up some shrapnel deployed short-range rockets. Since then. Short
1: range rockets. Of military Pegasus 13 from between systems and 70 are required to, to defend to all of Israel. Enemy to perform in all enemy enemy Artillery fired from, from first within and a 70 kilometer radius in March is detected in by the defense system's mobile tracking unit. The missile calculated so from the Gaza strip path is monitored. Several and the and data have been sent since the weapon management and control unit, which calculates military military the likely point of 13 impact. The systems are a to defend all of populated or hills areas Our within a 70 kilometer range. The shock is down in detected the air, by, the by one of the system's, systems three missile, missile launchers, each of which contains 20 missiles. missiles, its path is monitored and the data sent to a Weapon Management and Control Unit which calculates the likely point of impact. If a missile is heading towards populated or build-up areas, the system will intercept it. Incoming targets are shot down in the air by one of the system's three missile launchers, each of which contains 20 missiles.
0: Unfortunately, of course, not all of those rockets are intercepted, and so quite a few of them landed on cities and houses uh, in Israel. And that's what you're seeing there now some of the damage that was caused by the Palestinian rockets. And it needs to be pointed out, brothers and sisters and young people, that they fired, they say, they say around about uh, 1,000 rockets or so, but the Palestinians, Hamas, have got 10,000 rockets in reserve. So they've got a whole lot more ready to fire at Israel. And Hezbollah to the north of Israel had 26,000 rockets. And it's important to understand that because you see there is no way that Israel's is going to quell either Hamas or Hezbollah by war. So we want to find out how Israel's is going to get their peace required by scripture as we just read in Ezekiel 38. So Israel gave warnings about the buildings that they were going to target uh, because they know that Hamas, of course, have set up their centres, their offices, in places like schools and hospitals and government buildings where they think they're going to be untouchable by Israel. So we asked the question, what next? Now make the point again... But the reason that Israel entered into a ceasefire... was a couple of reasons. One is that the peace was broken by Egypt. and Israel doesn't want to upset its relationship with Egypt because they've got peace with Egypt. And the second reason is that Israel has come to the knowledge that they will not be able to wipe out Hamas and Hezbollah. So what are they going to do about that? What's the future hold? That's why we want to deal today with Ezekiel 38 verses 1 to 13. So let's just start out by giving a summary of Ezekiel 38. Now, this is a very well-known chapter amongst us. Not in all parts of our brotherhood, but certainly well-known amongst us. In verse 2, we have a dictator called Gog, who is going to dominate the entire Eurasian continent, that is, the whole north area of Israel. And, of course, the territory east and north of Israel is under Gog control, as we're told in verses 5 and 6. A dependent Europe will fall under Gog's political control, we know from verse 6, without the need for war, by the way. And we know from verse 8 that the West Bank is to be part of Israel proper. Verses 8 to 11 tell us that Israel will be at peace internally and with near neighbours, and that in verse 12 they will be very prosperous and envied by other nations. We also know from verse 13 that Yemen, Yemen is the Sheba of verse 13, uh, and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf States, who are the D-Dan of verse 13, are first to oppose the Gogin invasion. They were the first ones to put their hands up and to object to the invasion of the land of Israel. In that same verse, of course, we've got Britain and her young lions, and we believe that Australia is one of those former colonies who have a British form of government, will follow suit. In verses 15 to 17, there's a massive, this massive invasion of Israel comes from the uttermost parts of the north, So we know, of course, it's another identification of Russia. And we know from verse 18 that at the appropriate time, the God of Israel will intervene to save his people from complete destruction. Verses 19 to 20, a great earthquake confuses and destroys the invading army. And in verses 21 to 22, mutual destruction and heavenly artillery destroy the invaders. And the outcome of all of that in verse 23 is that these judgments will produce recognition of Yahweh. As Israel's God. So that's the content of Ezekiel 38. Now let's home in on just a few areas, a couple of areas of that section that we read. In particular, verses 8 to 12 require Israel to be at peace both internally and with its neighbours before the Gogin invasion of the land. And in verse 10, there's a clear suggestion that some kind of agreement or a cord is broken by Gog in conceiving the invasion of Israel. So read verse 10 again with me. Thus saith Adonai Yahweh, It shall come to pass, that at the same time shall things come into thy mind, and thou shalt think an evil thought. Literally it could be rendered, thou shalt devise an evil plan. There's nothing much more evil than having come to some kind of agreement or covenant or accord and then turning on it like, in fact, Hitler did, you remember, in the Second World War. They had an agreement with the Russians that there would be a mutual peace between the two nations and that they would divide up Poland when Germany invaded uh, Poland. They were divided up between the Russians and the Germans. But within 18 months or so, Hitler invaded Russia uh, in June uh, 1941. And that, of course, was the total breaking of the covenant that had been made just 18 months or so before. Stalin was stunned by that. He could not believe that it was happening. But, of course, it did happen. That's the kind of evil thought that I believe verse 10 is telling us about. So that some kind of agreement or covenant that has been made between Israel and Russia is broken. That is a terribly evil thought. Verse 11 of this chapter indicates that the nation of Israel is completely unsuspecting, that an attack is imminent, and therefore is totally unprepared. We we have here described the land of, it says, unwalled villages. The the Hebrew word perazar actually means a land of open country, or literally rendered, the land of open spaces. And that's a reference back to verse 8, because verse 8 tells us that Israel is going to annex the West Bank prior to these events, and of course, we know that that process is already fully underway. So, what I want to do is, in two parts, I want to have a look at the the sections of this uh, area of Ezekiel 38 that have actually come to pass at least to a large degree. Still a little way to go in relation to the first one, but not too far. We're going to have a look at the second requirement. And the second requirement is peace internally. That is, for Israel to have peace with the Palestinians in its own border and with the the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, and to get rid of the problem on their northern border with Hezbollah breathing down their necks. That is a long way from being fulfilled. So we have some remarkable events that have occurred in the last four years, since 2017 in particular, and we want to review those. And then we're going to have a look at what the prospects are for getting internal peace for Israel. So let's have a look at the external first. So I'm going to step you back in time. We're going to go back four years. This, this, in my view, was the quote of the year in 2017. It appeared in the article with the title, Proxy War Between Iran and Saudi Arabia Intensifies. And this is the quote in the green on the screen. There are times in history... When the confluence of events conspire to install a position that was once regarded as a fantasy. You know, it was a fantasy to the world. That that Israel might have peace with nations like Egypt, who had sought to destroy it. That it might have peace with Jordan and, and with Saudi Arabia and with the Gulf states, who financed the invasion of Israel in 1967 and again in 1973. So how come, how come that these nations who spent seven or eight decades trying to destroy Israel would all of a sudden want to have peace with Israel, but even more than that, they would want to have Israel as an ally, which of course is clearly implied by verse 13. The fact that they object first, the Sheba and Dedan of that verse, that is, the nations of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, the fact that they are the first to object would indicate that they are strong allies of Israel. Now, that's ludicrous, or it was ludicrous, but it's a fact today. Now, how come? How would this come to pass? Well, of course, it was always required. It had to come to pass, but how was it going to come to pass? Well, as you can see on the bottom of that slide, it was the division of the Sunni and Shiite Muslim nations in that region that is the source of the remarkable developments in the Middle East. And when you look at it, and you've seen this map before, I believe... The blue colours here are the Sunni Muslims, and there's a lot of them throughout the world. And the green is your Shia Muslims. Now, they hate each other with a passion. They have a different imam. They they are on different roads in terms of their religion. Uh, The the Shias are very strong. They have uh, Sharia law and things like that. Uh, Very, very strict on a whole range of things. And they hate the Sunnis. And, of course, Saudi Arabia, And these areas here is is Sunni. In fact, Yemen is partly Shia. But Iran is 100% Shia and Iraq is 60% Shia. And that's why there's tension between them because Iran, of course, has been been attacking its neighbours for some time. So articles came out like this. Iran, the real enemy, not Israel. So this Saudi columnist wrote on the 6th of June, 2017, that while there's no need for demonstrations of friendship toward Israel, a country that occupies Arab land, at the same time there's no need for unjustified demonization of Israel, especially at a time when the Palestinians themselves and Arab countries have already signed peace treaties with Israel. A careful examination of the question of who is the enemy will, he says, lead to the clear conclusion that it is Iran and not Israel that poses a threat and endangers Saudi Arabia and that everything possible must be done to defeat it. So this is why those nations, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, have begun, at least, to make very strong moves towards uh, peace with Israel. Now, we know, of course, that Israel's very concerned about Iran establishing permanent military bases in Syria. So as, as, of course, we know that ISIS uh, was being removed, the Iranians came in behind them, and Israel has been attacking with their planes and and other things. They've been attacking these military bases across the border in Syria. So that means that Israel has a problem with Iran, just like the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia have a problem with Iran. And, of course, we know that the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia are involved in Yemen because Iran is supporting the Houthi rebels in Yemen. So there's a war there as well. So there's a lot of things happening between the Sunni and the Shia, and it's this that has brought about the change in their attitude towards Israel, the changing of the Arab mind. And this fellow, Hakim, wrote an article in March uh, 2017, I think it was, in which he said this, Arab, The Arab mind must liberalize, liberate itself from the legacy of former Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser and the legacy of both the Sunni and Shia sects which has instilled for political interests the culture of Jew hatred and denial of their historic right in the region. And so things began to happen. When Donald Trump came to power in January 2017, the US policy towards Israel changed. And he began to put pressure on these nations in order to to have a different approach to Israel. And one of the things that happened that was very, very important was the Saudi king's decision uh, in uh, 2017, in the middle of the year, to elevate his son, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who was at the time 31, to the role of Crown Prince, which is like the Prime Minister of the country. He's heir to the throne, and when his father dies, he will take that position. Now, you know this fellow, because he, he unquestionably gave orders uh, to have uh, that fellow who was murdered in, the Turkish, uh, in Turkey, remember, Uh, in the uh, Saudi Arabian uh, uh, embassy. He was murdered and put in suitcases and carried away. You've heard of him. Well, no doubt this this man, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, was probably behind that move. But nothing has happened to him. He hasn't been put out of office because God has a purpose with this man. And this this article goes on to say this. It is not merely an internal affair of the Saudi Arabians, of the the royal hierarchy, but a game-changing international event, and it's all been, of course, the hand of God working through men like Donald Trump, that that has come to pass. And Of course, Donald Trump had a Jewish son-in-law uh, who, was in, who was deeply involved uh, in uh, what happened over the four years of his rule. So why does Saudi Arabia need Israel? Well, another article told us that. This is uh, November 2017. The third leg in this three-legged peace stall is a joint Saudi and Israeli effort to defeat Iran and Hezbollah and develop a plan to interrupt an imperial desire for for a Shia crescent. When an Iranian missile was fired into the Saudi capital, the Crown Prince realised a direct confrontation with Iran is inevitable. He also assessed his ability, because at the time he was the Defence Minister of Saudi Arabia, he assessed his ability to, to defeat Iran in a land battle and concluded his forces do not measure up. However, with Israeli assistance, a joint force might prevail. Hence, the Crown Prince is developing joint military manoeuvres with Israel as his key ally. And that is where the thing took off. The old Saudi Saudi Arab League peace plan of 2003 is a dead letter, said this Debka article. Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia, has dropped its demand that Israel accept the Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as its capital. Since the original Saudi peace proposal, which the prince called Plan A, was dead, it is necessary to move forward to Plan B. So what is Plan B? Plan B is essentially as follows. The state of Palestine would be established in the Gaza Strip plus large tracts of territory to be annexed from northern Sinai. Egypt had agreed to that outline. Now, that is incredible, isn't it? We've got the Saudi Arabians, and they wouldn't publicise this, of course, to the world, but they've abandoned the idea of a Palestinian state in the West Bank with East Jerusalem as a capital, and they are saying, well, give the Palestinians a state in the Gaza Strip. Oh, yes, give them some extra land, but let's, let them have their state down there. Now, we've done this exercise before in this hall, but I'm going to do it again. I'm going to take you to those two references that you see on the base of of that slide. Joel chapter 3 and verse 4, and Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. So come along with me to those chapters. Joel chapter 3, first of all. We're going to see what the scripture has to say about the possibility of a Palestinian state. There certainly won't be one in the West Bank, because... Ezekiel 38 verse 8 makes it very clear that when God comes down upon the mountains of Israel, they don't come down upon the mountains of Palestine. That will not be a Palestinian state. The land of Israel will be opened up. Today you've got to go right around the West Bank to get to the north of Israel. When we read Ezekiel 38, it is a land of wide open spaces. You'll be able to go up the, mass, the central massif of the land. No problem, because that will be part of Israel proper. And that process is well and truly underway. In fact, the current government, we don't know how long it's going to last in Israel, but the current government led by a fellow called Bennett, he's a right-wing politician, his policy is to annex the West Bank. Just like Netanyahu's, just like Benny Gantz, who was the leader of the Blue and White Party in, in the elections that have gone, Israel now has a policy that everybody basically agrees with in the government circles. They are going to annex the West Bank. So it will not be a Palestinian state. So where might that be? Well, Joel 3 might help us. Joel 3, verse 4. Now, we know the context of this. We know the early verses are the same as Zechariah, chapter 14. They're the same as Ezekiel 38. It's about the invasion of the land by this massive host from the north. They come down into the land... And they come to Jerusalem, and that's where they're destroyed, as we read, of course, uh, in verses 2 and 3. But verse 4, we read this. Yea, and what have ye to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon?" Now, it just so happens that that's where the Hezbollah reside, in the area of Tyre and Sidon, in southern Lebanon. And they, of course, in this time, will get involved, and God is going to punish them for their involvement. But prior to that, it's evident that they're at peace with Israel. At least they have been, in some way, they have been set to the side as, as no longer a huge problem for Israel. We don't know exactly what that will be, but we know that they will be at peace. And, but they will obviously get involved in the events of Armageddon as, as Go comes down upon the land. So they're going to get their punishment. But read on. It says, And all the coasts of Palestine coasts of Palestine. Now, the West Bank doesn't have a coast. The closest it gets to the Mediterranean Sea is nine miles in the old measurements. It doesn't have a coastline. But this Palestine does have a coastline. So it's a clear indication, isn't it, that if there is to be a Palestinian state, that's where it will be, because the Gaza Strip does have a coastline. Now, that's not the only reference. The other one is Zephaniah chapter 2. So come along a little bit further into the Prophets, to Zephaniah. And here we're going to find another reference to this fact. So in Zephaniah chapter 2, we're going to pick this up at verse 4, but before we come to verse 4, again you need to establish your context. Are we dealing with latter-day events? Well, yes, we are. Have a look at verse 11. This is God's judgment. This is where it leads. Verse 11. Yahweh will be terrible unto them. Now, the nations that he's referring to are those who have oppressed Israel. For he will famish all the gods of the earth. Hang on. How do you famish the gods of the earth? Well, you take away their devotees. You've got no one devoted to those gods anymore. You take away all of those who worship them. Well, how do you do that? Well, you convert them to the truth. So read on. It says... And men shall worship him, everyone from his place, even all the isles or coastlands of the nations. In other words, it doesn't matter where you are on earth in that day, all men will worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. So you see, we know the context. This is the end of the story. This is the establishment of the kingdom. So what leads to it? Well, what leads to it is Armageddon and those events that we're very familiar with. So it's in that context that we can read verses 4 to 7 of Zephaniah 2. Verse 4. For Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon a desolation. They shall drive out Ashdod at the noonday, and Ekron shall be rooted up. So there's judgments involved here. Woe well, unto the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Kerathites. Now, Kerathites, of course, were Philistines. The word of Yahweh is against you, O Canaan, and this is how it should read, of the land of the Philistines. I will even destroy thee, that there shall be no inhabitant. Why? Because the next verses will tell you that their vacated land will be taken over by the tribes of Israel. So when they're brought back to the land, they're going to take over the area that is now called Palestine. So if there is to be a Palestinian state, it will be in the Gaza Strip because this place has a coastline. We know, of course, that Philistines is the basis of the name Palestine. That's how we get Palestine. So what we have here is a clear indication of where things must head. If there's to be a state of Palestine, that's where it will be. So come back and have a look then at what's happened in recent times in relation to uh, peace with Israel by those who had sought to destroy it for seven or eight decades. What we have here is an illustration of where Sheba and Dedan are. Those of Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 13, to which I'm returning. Sheba, of course, is Yemen, and that can be demonstrated very easily. And Dedan is that bottom half, maybe up to the, to the, to the area of the middle of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. And so here are your powers. Now, Oman was one of the first cabs off the rank in beginning to build some kind of relationship with Israel. So back in October... 2018, we read this in the Jerusalem Post. Oman publicly called on Middle East countries to accept Israel after Prime Minister Netanyahu had made a historic visit to that country. And then, of course, step by step through the time of Trump's presidency, as his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, went out as an ambassador from the White House, things began to develop until in September last year, so it's less than 12 months ago now, we had the signing of what's called the Abraham Accord, where you have these nations, and there you've got Trump and Netanyahu and the, and the, uh, the rulers of the United Arab Emirates uh, and uh, uh, the other country that was involved. Now, this article pointed out how this came about. Israeli media reports that this agreement was brokered by Jared Kushner, Mossad chief Yossi Cohen, has recently retired, and others. But foremost... Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, ruler of the UAE, has boldly led the Middle East into what will not just realign the region's geopolitics, but quite likely those of the whole world. Now, they don't even know what they're saying, really, do they? We know that what's happening here is going to ultimately realign everything in this world because it will introduce, ultimately, the Kingdom of God. As per the agreements, the UAE and Bahrain will establish embassies, exchange ambassadors, cooperate and work together with Israel across a range of sectors, including tourism, trade, health care, and security. So prophecy requires Sheba, that is Yemen, and there are things happening there. And Dedan, Saudi Arabia, that is just part of Dedan. Oman and the Gulf states, to be supportive allies of Israel at the time of the Gogin invasion. So Netanyahu knew how important this was. And this particular article in the Hindu newspaper in September 2020 made that point. Netanyahu described the accord as a pivot of history, heralding a new dawn. And then he said this, You have heard from the President, meaning Trump, that he has already lined up more and more countries. This was unimaginable a few years ago, and he's quite right. But with resolve, determination, a fresh look at the way peace is done, this is being achieved. He left out one thing, of course. He left out the fact that God was involved in this, that the hand of the angels was involved in this in order to fulfil Bible prophecy. But that's their problem. They don't see God as being the one who will ultimately redeem them. But even in Saudi Arabia, they try to change the attitude of people. And they're using sermons in their their mosques to achieve it. This was reported by the Jerusalem Post that this particular uh, fellow... Uh, Abdul Rahman al-Sadayas, the Im- Imam of the Grand Mosque in Mecca, has been interpreted when he gave this particular so-called sermon that's, that Arabs and Muslims need to develop normalisation with Israel. And In his sermon, he said that Islam requires Muslims to respect non-Muslims and to treat them well, so they're trying to change the attitude of their people towards Israel. And then, of course, before Trump went out of office, he had lost the election by um, the middle of November last year. He went out of office. He wasn't, he wasn't going to give up, of course. He thought he might stay in office, as we know. But he sent his uh, Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, uh, to Saudi Arabia. And he met with Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, and, uh, and others in that place to discuss Future moves towards normalisation of relationships in relationships between Israel and the Arab states. So that's a quick review, isn't it? A quick review, and we've heard this before, of how verse thirteen of Ezekiel thirty-eight uh, is coming to pass. There are still a few steps to be taken, but we have seen some dramatic things in the last four years that have occurred that we didn't expect pro- probably to see uh, from here. But There's always a but. Israel doesn't yet have peace. Peace internally. And of course the events of the last month have proven that. They don't have peace within. And that's required by Ezekiel 38. So let's just remind ourselves of that again. It says at the end of verse 8 of Ezekiel 38, that having been brought back to the land, when Gog's going to invade, it says at the end of that verse, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. That word safely means securely. So, then you read verse 10. Sorry, verse 11, it says. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of wide open spaces. I will go to them that are at rest. That word means to be in a state of repose or peace. That dwell safely. So here we've got this security again. To live securely. All of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, which strongly suggests that the green line and the walls that divide Israel from the West Bank today will have been taken down. And that's how you'll get this land of open spaces. And they will have this eternal peace. Really? The events of the last few weeks tell me that that's some distance away. So how's that going to happen, do you think? Well, one thing we know, and Israel knows, they're not going to defeat Hamas and the Hezbollah by war. They didn't do that back in the 1980s when they attacked Lebanon. They could not achieve what they wanted to achieve. They had a battle against the Palestinians in 2008 where they bombed the Gaza Strip. It happened again in 2014. It's happened again in 2021. And it's had the same outcome. They haven't been able to subdue Hamas and the Hezbollah. So how's that going to happen? Well, we know it's not too far away, but how will it happen? So we want to explore that. So, given this present situation, there's clearly dramatic things that have to occur. How will peace come? Are there any prophecies that provide a clue to how that peace can be established quickly? Because it has to be established. We know that Armageddon is not that far away. Well, we have testimony of Amos 3, verse 7, which is very reassuring. It says this. Surely, Adonai Yahweh will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. And we want to explore some of those secrets. I want to take you then to the history of the kings of Israel and Judah and to a particular time in that history. And to do this, we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 7. So come with me to Isaiah 7. Now, what you can see on the wall is the history of the kings and prophets of Israel and Judah. Pretty well-known chart, this one. And you see the yellow line of the kingdom of Israel in the north, and they came to an end at the, in the sixth year of Hezekiah, king of Judah. All right. Well, Hezekiah's father was the worst king of Judah. His name was Ahaz. You know, the scripture, it's almost like God is exasperated with this man. He writes in Chronicles, this is that king, Ahaz. That's how bad this man was. He was totally faithless. He had not a scarlet of faith in Yahweh, Israel's God. And that's proven as you come to Isaiah chapter 7. So let's have a look at what, what happens here in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 7. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that reason the king of Syria and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. And his heart was moved and the heart of his people as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. So he had a problem. He had a huge problem. But it just so happens that his problem is the problem, or was the problem, of Israel today. He had two enemies seeking his destruction. One of them was Syria, which of course is the case with Israel today, and the other one was those who now inhabit the area of northern Israel, because the area of southern Lebanon was once the territory of Israel. In our readings recently, we've just read, when the territory was divided up, that Sidon, was part of one of the tribes of Israel. Well, it's part of Lebanon today. So where the Hezbollah are is what was once northern Israel. So the enemies are in the same place. Exactly the same place. What we're going to find is that we have here a prophecy of the future. And we'll look into that in some detail. When you look further into Isaiah chapter 7, verses 3 to 11, Yahweh seeks to help Ahaz and he offers him a sign. He says, ask of me a sign. I'll give you a sign that I will save you from these enemies. There's no way I'm going to let them overthrow the throne of David. So I will help you. Look what Ahaz does. He, he doesn't want that sign. He said, uh, verse 12, But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt Yahweh. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will ye also weary my God also? And so God gives him a sign, of course, which we know well. The sign of the coming Messiah. Well, here we've got our history. So here you've got Reason, the king of the nation of Syria. You've got Pekah, the son of Remaliah. Here they are, they want to overthrow Ahaz, the king of Judah. So this is very, very important in relation to prophecy. You see, Israel is going to be invaded by the Gogian host, who in the prophecies of Isaiah and Micah are described as... The Assyrian. And a little exercise can be quite important. And we're reading through the prophecy of Isaiah in our readings at the moment. A little exercise in Isaiah can help you. Have a look at the times when you see this title, The Assyrian. Let's just take one or two. Come to Isaiah chapter 10 and have a look with me at verse 5, where you see that title. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger. When you read this chapter, it's evident it's about the latter days. Oh, yes, it happened historically. God sent the Assyrian against his people, Israel in the north. He sent the Assyrian against against Hezekiah, and we know those events well. But it was a pattern for the latter days, and we know that when you read certain parts of this chapter. In verse 24, for example, you read, Therefore thus saith Adonai Yahweh of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian, he shall smite thee with a rod, he shall lift up his staff against the art of the manor of Egypt. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and mine anger in their destruction. And it goes on to speak about events that can only really occur in the latter days. That's also true in chapter 14. Just turn a few pages in your Bible to Isaiah 14, and have a look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, That I will break the Assyrian in my land, and upon my mountains tread him under, underfoot, Then shall his yoke depart from off them, and his burden depart from off their shoulders. Now, what's this about? What era is it about? Well, read the next verse, verse 26. This is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out upon all nations. So it's not just about the days of Hezekiah. It's actually a pattern of events to come. It's a prophecy of the times in which we live. It's based, of course, on the invasion of Judah in the days of Hezekiah. But that is a type, as we know, of Armageddon. And as you sweep through this prophecy, you can go to chapter 30 and verse 31. 31 verse 8. uh, Micah chapter 5 verses 5 and 6. And you will see that the Assyrian is the title given to Gog in the latter days, in the prophecies of Isaiah and Micah. And the Assyrian army, of course, was destroyed outside the walls of Jerusalem, as will the host of Gog. And faithless Ahaz is the type of modern Israel who made the first pact with the Assyrians. And that's recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 16. So come to 2 Kings and have a look and see what they did in the times of Ahaz, the king of Judah. 2 Kings chapter 16. We read in verses 7 to 9. If you go back to verse 5, you'll see that you've got Reason, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, who are going to invade the land of Judah. So what does he do in verse 7? So Ahaz sent messages to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am thy servant and thy son. Really? Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of Yahweh and in the treasures treasures of the king's house and sent it for a present to the king of Assyria. He's going to buy him off. And in verse 9, And the king of Assyria hearkened unto him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried the people of it captive to Kerr. And he slew reason. Yes, and history records that when the Assyrians came to Damascus, they killed reason. And Damascus lay in ruins for 40 years. That's how long it was. It was uh, subdued. So they were subdued in, the, in around about 720 BC under Tiglath-Pileser, taken and destroyed, and lay in ruins for 40 years. Damascus today is half in ruins, and it won't be long. If I was President Assad of Syria, I would resign and find a place, a safe place, somewhere else in the rest of the world. Because, you see, if the pattern follows, reason was slaughtered by the Assyrians. So his future doesn't look very bright. If that is a pattern of history that is is actually prophecy, I don't think he's very secure. Damascus is already half in ruins, and it will eventually be fully in ruins. They were taken away into captivity like the Northern Kingdom of Israel... The prophecy was fulfilled, we know, from Isaiah chapter 17 and verse 1. Just a few pages on in Isaiah, you read in verse 1. The burden of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap, as it was indeed for 40 years. And the kingdom of Syria remained a province of Assyria till the capture of Nineveh by the Medes in 625 BC when it fell under the conquerors. The destiny of Damascus is clear. We've just read that passage out of 2 Kings chapter 16 and verse 9. And we've just read Isaiah 17, verse 1, that that place is going to be decimated by the Assyrians. And, of course, we know that Russia is installed deeply in Syria. And it's going nowhere. And they are becoming tired of Assad. You could read reports of how the Russians are becoming very agitated with Assad. He's making demands that they're not intending to, uh, to give. And so the day will come when he will be, I believe, removed. So... If a has made a covenant with the Assyrians of the past and we know that these events are a type, what does that mean? Well, it means that Israel will make a covenant with the latter-day Assyrians, with the Russians. So how far do you think this has advanced? How far have they gone down that road? We want to deal with that now. So what would a covenant between Russia and Israel achieve? Well, Russian control of Syria removes the last enemy among the nations surrounding Israel. They're at peace with all the others. Russian domination of Iran would end the nuclear threat to Israel. Now that would be a bonus, wouldn't it? Any agreement would include Russian approval for Israel to to eliminate Iranian-backed Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, or at least quieten them. We know that Israel will annex the West Bank, ancient Samaria in fulfilment of Ezekiel 38, verse 8. The Gaza Strip would become the homeland of the Palestinians, as we've seen in Joel and in Zephaniah. And we know from Ezekiel 38 verse 8 that that is required because, you see, Go comes against the mountains of Israel. And the mountains of Israel, of course, 90% of them are in the West Bank. This red line, which, of course, they call a green line, that is the, Gaza, the, the, sorry, the West Bank, Gaza Strip's over here. This area, 90% of that is the mountains of Israel. So we know that that's going to be annexed by Israel before Armageddon. So is there any evidence that Russia and Israel are moving towards some kind of agreement that secures peace for Israel, both internally and with its neighbours? Well, yes, there is. So I'm going to take you back. I'm going to take you back ten years. Ten years. And we're going to see what's been happening between Russia and Israel. In 2011, Vladimir Putin said, Israel is in fact a special state to us. It is practically a Russian-speaking country. Now, I think that might be a slight exaggeration, but it's not a complete exaggeration because over 1.5 million people in Israel do speak Russian because they came to Israel from Russia in the 1990s and they and their children still speak Russian. He goes on to say... Israel is one of the few foreign countries that can be called Russian-speaking. It's apparent that more than half of the population speaks Russian. He is given a little bit of exaggeration at times. Putin additionally claimed that Israel could be considered part of the Russian cultural world and contended that songs, which are considered to be national Israeli songs in Israel, are in fact Russian national songs. He further stated that he regarded Russian-speaking Israeli citizens as his compatriots and part of the Russian world. So it gives you a bit of an idea of where he's coming from. You see, of the 8.18 million in the land of Israel today, 1.6 million are Russian Jews and 1.7 million are Arabs. In May 2013, and we know this from the events that occurred in that month, there were 10,000 Red Army, Russian soldiers that is, veterans, who had served in World War II. Think about that. 10,000 of them living in Israel. So the family links are very strong. And that's why you see things like this in Jerusalem. You see the wall of Jerusalem there? Here's a man. I love Putin, someone has written into the, into the dust on the back of that vehicle. I love Putin. Putin visited Israel in June 2012. He said the talks had been detailed and very useful. Shimon Peres, who was at the time the President of Israel, visited Moscow in November 2012 for the inauguration of the Jewish Museum and Tolerance Centre in Moscow. And there's been growing cooperation with Russia, especially when Russia came into the Middle East in September 2015. It was Netanyahu, who was one of the first international leaders, to get on a plane and to fly to Moscow so that he could nail down an agreement with Vladimir Putin that Russia and Israel would not clash over Syria. Have you heard of any? Well, the Israelis mistakenly shot down a Russian plane. But they apologised and Russia said, well, don't worry about it. Really? There's been no incident between Russia and Israel. And Israel's flying over Syria. They're flying over to destroy Iranian bases. Russia says, well, do what you like. Really? How did that come about? It came about because there is an agreement already. Netanyahu, of course, was very strongly opposed to the six nations who who agreed. The... the, uh, the Iranian deal, to stop Iran getting a nuclear weapon. Uh, And they believed that they'd made a historic mistake and of course that's why. When when Trump withdrew from that agreement uh, Netanyahu strongly supported that. You know there's an interesting little passage in Hosea chapter 12 and verse 1. It says this. Ephraim feedeth on wind and followeth after the east wind. He daily increaseth lies and desolation and they do make a covenant with the Assyrians and oil is carried into Egypt. So there is clear proof that this is happening. So here's Wikipedia on Israeli-Russian ties. In October 2015, Israel and Russia held meetings to coordinate over Syria and to avoid accidentally clashing or scrambling each other's communications while operating over the country. In March 2016, Putin said the relations with Israel were special and based on friendship mutual understanding, and the long, common history. Putin stated, Russia and Israel have have developed a special relationship. 1.5 million Israeli citizens come from the former Soviet Union. They speak the Russian language, are the bearers of Russian culture, Russian mentality. They maintain relations with their relatives and friends in Russia, and this makes the interstate relations very special. Now, this is something, of course, that's not widely known, but it's there on the internet, in Wikipedia, recording all of the things that have happened. We know that this has happened. This is a Debka report from the 10th of June 2016. Russian President Vladimir Putin and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu decided at their 7th of June meeting in Moscow to deepen the military ties. Notice that. To deepen the military ties between the Russian and Israeli armed forces. This historic decision spells the end of the IDF's unique relationship with the US, this article stated. In fact, on September, uh, 6th of September 2010, Russia and Israel signed a five-year military agreement. And that's why they met in, in 2016. They were re-signing it. They were going on another five-year agreement between Russia and Israel on military matters. And the Russian leader tried to convince Netanyahu at the time by saying that the presence of the Russian Navy and air force in the area of the Middle East, right up against Israel's border, would guarantee that no Arab or Muslim military force, such as those of Iran, Syria and Hezbollah, would attack Israel's gas fields. So they are are edging closer to Russia. The Syrian crisis, of course, has brought Russia to Israel's northern doorstep. And Netanyahu said in October 2015, Israel is aware of the fact that it has a Russian border now. Israel is a small, strong country, who said, and it needs to make sure it doesn't enter any unnecessary conflicts. So threatened, and with its relationship with the Obama administration at that time in tatters, and Russia at its borders, Israel has been forced to consider its future allies in the region. And it seems as though they realise that Russia is their only hope. We get articles like this now. Why Russia may be a smart business partner for Israel. This is February twenty-third, two 2016. Israeli leaders, though, embrace a real politic view regarding their national security. And Netanyahu prefers to handle Israel's security concerns regarding Russia's presence in Syria, especially Israel's red line on the transfer of advanced arms to Hezbollah by Iran or Syria via military coordination and a search for common interests. In that context inviting Russian participation in Israel's gas industry would offer the Israelis tremendous leverage in pushing Putin in to prioritise core Israeli security interests in the region. So sum that up in layman's terms, simple terms. What that's telling us is this. That Israel is beginning to think this way. Now, they refused the 2016 offer, but they're going to be forced eventually to do this. They are saying that if we bring Russia in on our side, if we've got an agreement... And they come into this area, Hezbollah's not going to fire rockets at us. Hamas is not going to fire rockets at us. Because if they fire rockets at us, they're going to hit Russians. And then Russia's going to respond. So Russia will be our protector. Exactly what Ahaz did. That's exactly what he did. So faithless Ahaz becomes, of course, he becomes the type of faithless Israel at the end of the days. So allowing Gazprom a role in Israel's energy industry could play a direct role in securing the safety and security of Israel's offshore gas exploration infrastructure and of the nation itself. Inviting the Russians in, though, could solve this problem in a stroke. Hence, Hezbollah remains a key piece of Russia's Shiite alliance and access that greatly benefits from Russia's air power over Syria. This provides Moscow tremendous leverage over Hezbollah, if Russian citizens were located on the offshore drilling rigs, it is almost inconceivable that Hezbollah or even Iran would attack these installations and risk Russian civilian casualties. I mean, you could not ask, could you? you could not ask for a better development to see the, re- the realisation of that prophecy concerning Ahaz of old. These two men, we know that Netanyahu is not currently in power, but don't write him off. And if God's got a purpose for him, in the future he'll be back. These two men have a very, very close relationship. And they have been building that relationship. Oh, yes, it took a little bit of a... It you know, went into cotton wool for a while when Trump was in office and Netanyahu could derive benefit from a relationship with America. But that's gone. We've now got, of course, Biden, who was the vice-president in the, in, the, in the rule of Obama. And Obama was anti-Israel. So there's no doubt that American policy will change towards Israel under Biden. And this is what we read about 2018. Mr Putin stepped into the void created when former US President Barack Obama decided not to intervene in Syria. And now with Donald Trump's White House showing little interest, the Kremlin has emerged onto another stage left dark by the US, the host and the patron of Middle East peace conferences. That's Russia's position today. They become the host and the patron of peace in the Middle East. Ridiculous, isn't it? That same article. With America focused on its domestic problems, and they've got a lot of them. and With Mr Trump's confrontationalism costing his country friends abroad, Moscow sees an opening for itself to play power broker in the broader Middle East and beyond. And we know that Netanyahu has fallen victim to that. So we've got evidence, clear evidence... And, of course, this is their latest commitment. Russia's renewed commitment from 2016. Russia called on Israel Monday to let it know about threats to its security from Syria to allow Russia to defuse the situation instead of using Syria as a battlefield, Russia's Sputnik News reported. Russia's foreign minister, this is the guy Lavrov, said his country doesn't want Syria used as a platform for the Iranian-Israeli strike. Russia tells Israel, stop bombing Iran targets in Syria. We'll take care of it. Yeah, just like the Assyrians of old. So we know, we know that that prophecy will be fulfilled. That article went on to say this. Russia had previously told Israel that they are willing to intervene on Israel's behalf rather than have Israel strike at Iranian military targets in Syria. If Israel is really forced to respond to threats to Israeli security coming from the Syrian territory... We have told our Israeli colleagues many times, if you see such threats, please give us the information. In other words, they're saying, we will be your protector. And then we read this about what Lavrod said. So our dear Israeli colleagues... (laughs) Really? Give me a break. Our dear Israeli colleagues, if you have facts that your state is facing threats from the Syrian territory, Report the facts urgently and we will take every measure to neutralise the threat. So a decade of stealthy preparation makes an alliance between Russia and Israel likely very soon as the US turns its attention elsewhere. Yes, peace is coming for Israel internally as well as externally. But it'll be through some very painful experiences along the way. But it's pretty obvious where it's going to come from. It's going to come from Israel doing what what Ahaz did, making an alliance, coming to some kind of agreement with the latter-day Assyrian. And the latter-day Assyrian in due time will think an evil thought and they will come down into the land of Israel and Israel will be totally unprepared for that. We aren't very far away, brothers and sisters, from the culmination of these things. We aren't very far away from the kingdom of God. Israel shall blossom. And bud, and fill the face of the whole world, says the prophecy of Isaiah. Yahweh will make Zion the seat of the government of his son. But before that, we're going to see prophecy fulfilled. We're going to see that pattern established in Ahaz and then Hezekiah and the destruction of the Assyrians upon the mountains of Israel and hopefully going to be there to participate in it.